The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets, policy and politics. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's still a ton of jobs that the economy demands labor to be filled, and we need these immigrants. And as long as we refuse to make immigration an economic-based argument and let it be one of these cultural ones, uh, unfortunately, I don't see the type of action that's going to be necessary to bring about the comprehensive immigration reform that Americans over and over again in the public opinion polls say they want. The Latino American voter and consumer, coveted by politicians, pollsters, and corporations, targeted by partisan culture wars and the debate over immigration policy. And so here with an episode we're calling Democracy. Stick around and learn something. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me, my guest from SoCal is Chris Porter. He's chief demographer at John Burns Real Estate Consulting. They help executives who are connected to the residential real estate industry make sense of what's happening at the national, regional, and market level. Chris co-authored the book, Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Business, published in 2016. And full disclosure, we are friends from college. And the genesis of this interview today is a dinner I had with Chris three, four weeks ago that uncovered really surprising trends in demography and shifts in demography, really eye-openers ahead of this uh, midterm election. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Robin. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Nice to finally have you on. I got to tell you what was uh, shocking to me. I was asked to do an NPR appearance a week ago, uh, two weeks ago for Here and Now. The headline is U.S. Latinos would be the world's fifth largest economy. New research found that if it was its own country, the U.S.'s Latino population would have the fifth largest economy in the world, which had me thinking back to our conversation that so much of economic growth and prosperity and stability in the United States, considering demographic trends, has been at the hands of net immigration growth. Talk to me about that. You're exactly right. I mean, if you go back and look at our history in the U.S., early 1900s, about 13, 14% of our population was foreign-born. Over the next several decades, that really dropped pretty considerably to the point where by 1970, it was less than 6 7%. And now we're back up at about 14% of, of the population in the U.S. was born outside our country. And... You know, you look at some of the laws that were passed during the 80s and the 90s that allowed for more immigration into the U.S., but it really has driven about a third of our net population growth over the last couple of decades. Uh, it's been driven by by foreign immigration. And it's just, it's as we've gone through periods of, of time where we have booms and busts in the U.S. births, that immigration has really kind of helped to fill in some of those gaps caused by those those busts in, in the baby busts of the 70s, for example. You could break this down for me. I see that in your research in population dynamics, they're declining birth rates, just about 3.6 million births in the U.S. per year. And the rising volume of deaths due to the aging of the population, we've seen an increase of deaths of despair. We've seen a 
a pullback in certain life expectancies through this pandemic. And the fact that immigration has been trending down and not adding to the population growth in the in the same way is leading to kind of contraction. Overall, it's just hard to grow the economy. It's hard to have a replacement rate for workers out there producing and paying taxes and kicking back into Social Security. You're exactly right. And so we look at the, the population that's 20 to 64 years old as the, the working age population. It's about 95% of full-time jobs in the U.S. And that's a population that has been slowing. Uh, it's, it's growing, but just growing at a much slower rate over the last several decades. Really, the last decade or so is the boomers have started to retire and moved out of that, uh, that working age population. Last year, 2021, we actually saw the number of people in that working age population decline. I mean, we've just mm. we've reached this point where we had such a slowdown in immigration that it wasn't adding enough to the population to make up for that, that loss of either deaths or people retiring. And so we actually lost working age population. And look, if you don't have a, a population of people who are eligible to work growing, how can you expect to grow jobs in the country? I mean, you really have to entice workers off the fence uh, back into the labor force in order to grow your employment base in the U.S. And one way you can do that is by you know paying them more. And so I think this labor shortage that we're up against as a result of demographics is going to result in some increase in, in income and in wages. Now, if you visit a city like Manhattan or Los Angeles, you cannot imagine food service delivery. I believe there was a spoof movie called A Day Without an Immigrant. You cannot imagine uh, day laborers, people tarring roofs or showing up or doing landscaping or anything without, in the case of the United States, Mexican and Central American immigrants. There was always this idea that there would be people there that would do jobs and that, frankly, they kept wages repressed, wage growth. Where you walk into a Malaysian laundry and you saw Central American workers, food delivery gig workers, cleaning people, nannies. There was always this idea, I think, at least when I lived in Manhattan, of kind of look the other way. There's an informal workforce. A lot of these people were undocumented, but the economy couldn't run without them. So there was this, I guess, this cognitive dissonance between the kind of the culture wing of the Republican Party and the kind of the Chamber of Commerce wing that realized you need immigration, legal and otherwise, for commerce to grow. You're exactly right. I mean, Robin, look at our, our generation, born in the 1970s. And, and so just as a little bit of a, a background, in our book that we wrote, we, we looked at the generations by the decade in which people were born. It's a little bit more finer point on those big, broad, conventional generation definitions that everybody talks about, about the boomers and Gen X. We just want to put a little finer point on it. So our, our generation, born in the 1970s, it was a baby bust. Like the 1970s were, were the low point of births in the US. And today... To make up for that, you know, one in four people in the United States today who were born in the 1970s were born outside the U.S. So that, that immigration component has really helped to fill in that dip that we saw that you're exactly right, helped uh, provide jobs uh, for our economy that otherwise would have we've, we'd seen a shortfall. I'm quoting from Axios here. This is the morning after the election that we're recording this interview. The big picture this year, 50 Latino Democrats and 33 Hispanic Republicans ran for U.S. House seats, according to both parties. There were a record number of Republican campaigns by Latinos. Latino voters continue to hold a significant amount of political weight, especially in battleground states. But about a quarter of Latinos recently surveyed said neither Democrats nor Republicans are swaying them. 
I go back to that stat again. I mean, this is, has to be hugely coveted that U.S. Latinos would be the world's fifth largest economy. That's something that I think if you're talking to real estate planners, if you're talking to Fortune 500 marketers and everything, has to stand out as a as a growth category. It's no longer kind of in the soft spot of diversity education or anything. This is this gets down to actual profitability and growth in in markets. You're exactly right. I mean, if you look at back in the early 1900s, I mean, the majority of immigration that was coming to the U.S. was from Europe. And then over the last several decades, we've really seen more of that Latin American, Spanish-speaking demographic into the U.S. And in fact, you know, when I first met John Burns, our CEO, two decades ago, one of the first things we collaborated on was a an article about the rise of the Hispanic homebuyer. And that was that was 20 years ago that we, or 20 plus years ago that we did that. It's a huge part of our, our population and, and should not be undercounted for sure. So I see one of your big takeaways uh, in your deck is younger population is going to get larger with age due to immigration, which tends to pick up as people age into their 20s and 30s. Now, three big takeaways. The biggest population group turns 30 to 34 this year. The working age population is growing at a very slow rate. Ergo, future growth depends dependent on immigration trends. But where are immigration trends? My impression is that the Trump four years tried to really target the border and put a chill in terms of immigration coming in, documented or otherwise. We did have the housing bust, which dissuaded many workers from coming here. You have an ongoing labor shortage crisis in the United States that's not being filled by immigrants, whether it's in fast food or agricultural work. What is the state of play right now? Yeah, so you're exactly right. So I mentioned the, the 1970s born generation, one in four of them were born outside the U.S. It's a much smaller percentage for the younger generations today, those born in the 2000s, born in the 2010s. And that's really because people tend to move here to the U.S. in their 20s and their 30s. And so these groups that are born in the 2000s, 2010s, they're just not old enough yet. We'll start to see more immigration pick up for those younger generations over time. And you know we'll see those generations grow as a result of that. Um, and so it's it's just a matter of time. They need, they need to age into that population. In terms of what's going on with immigration trends, you're exactly right. So we saw sort of peak net immigration back in 2015, 2016, a little bit above a million net immigrants to the U.S. Uh, during those years. The next several years, we did see it slow. And, and you could say, okay, that's a, a function of the administration that was in place at the time, just being seen as less friendly to the immigrant population. But then, you know, 2020 hits, 2021 hits, and we've effectively shut off our borders. Immigration dropped to barely nothing. Uh, it was just, it was abysmal. You know, as we look at some of the other data points that, that, address immigration and, and just the demand for whether it's visas or border crossings. Look, there's certainly a demand for people to come into the U.S. It's, it's an attractive place to be, um, especially when you consider, you know, conditions around the world. It is still the the American dream, right, to, to arrive in the U.S. And so I think the demand is there. I do think we're going to start to see immigration pick up and, and add more and more to the population over time. But it's not something that's going to happen overnight. I think it, it phases in. We've just gone through this period of time where, as you pointed out, or as I pointed out earlier, we've effectively shut off our borders for a year or two. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Chris Porter. He's co-author of the book, Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses. He's the chief demographer at John Burns Real Estate Consulting in Irvine, California. Everybody's talking about the Latino vote. And it's it again, it's so cliche to say that it's not a monolith. It's not monolithic. You know, Chris, that I am a South Floridian originally, and the Cuban population in South Florida, the Cuban-American population does not resemble the Chicano population in SoCal or the border population in McAllen, Texas, 
or the central immigrants that come to the mid-Atlantic. I mean, isn't it problematic putting that entire immigrant vote in kind of into one bucket, the Latino immigrant voice or the preference? They're culturally, maybe religiously the same, but from a marketing perspective, I could tell you the old money Cubans that came here in the 1960s are markedly different from the Marielle refugees or the Venezuelan immigrants who've come to Florida since that economy has collapsed over the past five years. How do you put them all into one bar? I, you know, I don't think you can. I think you do have to start to, to dig a little bit deeper and understand the, the different groups, subgroups within the larger population. And I'll just, you know, use an example here. We, we, um, sort of an analogy for the the senior population. I mean, we, we have an increasing, widely increasing number of uh, retirees, people 65 plus in the US. But I don't think you can just classify everybody who's 65 plus in, in one group. I think you have to really segment and, and sort of understand the dynamics driving each sort of subgroup within that. You've got a, a massively large group of, of people that are, are starting to retire now. You've got a, a much older population who's living longer and you know has a longer retirement to finance. So I think there's there's ways to subcategorize within that larger population, uh, whether it's by age or whether it's by race and ethnicity, to really understand some of the dynamics at play there. You know, you had a great chart here. Texas, the South, and Western states, excluding California, have benefited the most from recent migration. Explosive numbers of net migration, domestic and international, in Texas, in Florida, even Georgia, even South Carolina and North Carolina, but. California sees this massive deficit. And I just read that California itself, I think, passed the UK or Germany as being one of the world's largest economies. And you would think that much of that demand was driven by immigration. If you take that stat again, that US Latinos would be the world's fifth largest economy. What's happening with the net decline in migration in California? Yeah, I think it really comes down to cost of living. It's just so expensive to live here. And you know, I need more than two hands to count the number of my peers who have left California, cashed out on their equity in their home here and moved to Texas, moved to Tennessee, moved to the Southeast. So I, I really do think the, the cost of living is a big factor there. And, you know, look, the, the Southeast, the, the, the Texas markets, Florida markets, Southwest, it does offer an, uh, an affordable alternative to the cost of living in, in California. And it's, that's a very tr attractive proposition for people. You know, it brings up this idea that you guys are often quoted on in John Burns Real Estate Consulting. More than 17 million units of housing are going to be demanded from 2020 to 2030 just to meet the demographic demand and restore some sort of demand supply equilibrium. Now, that clearly you just mentioned that's a reason why California is pricing out a lot of people and they're going to other states. Tax considerations, otherwise, you know, quality of living, cost of living. But the housing industry has always been a big draw. Housing formation has been a big draw for day laborers. You go to places like Jupiter, Florida, clearly South Florida, where a lot of money is sluicing into the housing market. If you're a contractor or subcontractor, you inevitably bring on migrant workers to do this stuff. It, it's just It would be impossible. It's like they say about the newspaper industry. You couldn't run newspapers without having recycled paper. You couldn't really run housing formation or housing starts or even begin to cut into this supply shortage without immigrant labor. Oh, you're exactly right. And in fact, after the great financial crisis, the housing recession that was concurrent with that, we saw a huge out-migration of, of people out of the construction industry who were, were born elsewhere. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge part of that industry. And you know, I think part of the reason we had slower construction over those next several years was we just didn't have the workers 
there to support the, the amount of construction that was ultimately going to be needed. And yes, we overbuilt some during the 2000s, but it's been a hard pull back to get people back into uh, construction for sure. Do you know if the Chamber of Commerce has kind of been pushing back against the kind of the cultural wars wing of conservatism at this point saying like, look, this is actually holding up the economy. And look, I'm not trying to take you in a political territory, but this is where I get a dissonance from corporate executives. I remember Terry McGraw, the CEO of McGraw Hill, was the parent company of Standard & Poor's in my magazine, Businessweek, would always worry about these trends. If you're going to have a creeping labor shortage uh, slowdown, even though he was a conservative Republican and everything, he thought that it was very important to not starve the economy of, of, of very needed labor growth. Well, so here's here's the thing. Uh, as I mentioned, we're we're growing the working age population at a very slow pace. In fact, we, we lost people last year in that that age group. And yes, there are people who are working past the age of sixty five. But you know, ninety five percent of your labor force is made up of people in that twenty to sixty four year old age group. That's the great majority. The, the solution is not just having babies because it's going to take another twenty years for them to enter the workforce. Uh, really, the only way you can grow that working age population is through immigration. So I, I just think, as I, as I mentioned before, I think we are in for a tight labor market. You know, even if we get out, we get out of this economic situation we're in now, we are calling for a mild recession. But I, you know, I think even beyond that, we are at a bit of a demographic disconnect right now where we just can't grow the economy as fast as we'd like to purely because of, of demographic reasons. So your, if I understand it, your research is saying that immigration is a net addition to the economy's balance sheet, whereas I think a lot of people might be compelled to think it's a net drain on transfer payments, on Medicaid, on aid to families with dependent children, that I think in the wash, what you're saying is that this economy, you bring younger people in, people who are wanting to work and chip money into the Social Security trust fund and unemployment insurance and everything while other people are retiring, that it's more than a net positive. You know, I, I think a case can be made for, for both sides. But I, I do think, like I said, if, if you want to add workers to the economy, uh, you either have to pull people off the sidelines and, and pay them a lot more, or we have to add you know, more workers through, through immigration. Chris Porter, uh, take me around the map to kind of more qualitative observations you've made about the immigrant populations. You have so many. I, I think if you go, what is it, the I-10 in Los Angeles has a little Philippines, a little Korea. You obviously have the Iranian population. The Mexican-American population, you know me, I love the Dodgers. You go to a Dodgers game and you have various translations in your AM headsets depending on the nationality you're from. You know, Fernando Valenzuela, the Koreans, the Iranians, K-Town. We hear a lot about Filipino-Americans, Iranian-Americans, Cuban-Americans are their own. What are, what are the pockets that have interested you across the country? So first off, I would just like to say, you know, for as much as you love LA sports teams and In-N-Out Burger, I'm surprised you haven't moved to, to Los Angeles or Southern California, Robin. <laughs> We'd love to we have call you. It, we call it Irondulous, my friend. <laughs> and I haven't been in five years, but I have a lot of family there. And, you, you know, so where I am in Irvine, it is a very much a melting pot. And you and I have had many discussions about the many Persian restaurants and food trucks in this area. I mean, it's it's amazing. My kids are getting exposed to so many different types of, you know, international cuisine just as a result of, of being in this melting pot that is Southern California. So it's it's fascinating. Certainly over the last, you know, decade or so, the Asian population, I mean, we've seen I think the face of the net immigration into the U.S. and specifically even into California had changed pretty uh, significantly where we're seeing more and more uh, money coming from Asia and, and more and more population coming from Asia with you know money in their, in their pockets and, and seeing the U.S. as sort of a, a safer investment than, than maybe where they uh, were coming from. And so, yes, I mean, as we look at the housing industry, 
you know, I go around and look at new home communities and I see the influence that, you know, the, the foreign born population has on just even the way that they decorate model homes. Uh, you know, they're definitely wanting to understand their buyers and understand what their preferences are and how do they, they cater to that and, and attracting prospective buyers. So yes, there are a lot of different multicultural groups here in, in the US and, and certainly in, in Southern California. It's just a, it's an amazing place to be privy to all of that. In the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, Chris, take me around, share some surprising observations with me. If I, I say this to a lot of guests that I have on. If I were sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, what are the demographic gee whiz takeaways that you would kind of wow me with? Yeah. So I mean, let's just start with population growth. I mean, and you and I were talking about this earlier too. I mean, we're just seeing a slowing in the, the rate of growth of, of population in the US. And that's, that's a combination of factors. We've got declining birth rates, as we talked about earlier, just just about 3.6 million births in the US per year. I mean, that's down pretty significantly when you consider just the, the sheer number of, of people in the US who are of sort of childbearing age. We saw a little bit of an uptick there during the, the pandemic, sort of a little baby, little baby boom. But the most recent data I've seen looks like, you know, births are starting to trend back down again. So, you know, just 3.6 million births, that's, that's a very, very low number. Uh, at the same time, we've got a rising number of deaths in the US. And that's, let's take COVID out of this. Just the sheer aging of the population in the U.S. We've got a bigger, older population. That's going to contribute to rising deaths in the U.S. So, look, we're going to continue to see slowing population growth in the U.S. just simply because of these demographic factors. Uh, births minus deaths is is contributing less to the growth in the population. And we talked about immigration already. The other thing I want to talk about is just sort of the do the domestic migration, where people are moving in the U.S. And I do think, yeah, yeah. I do think this is a big topic. It's it's one that we're really trying to wrap our heads around. The, the data from the government sources tend to be pretty lagging. But given the freedom to work from anywhere, people really took advantage of that and, and, and moved during these last couple of years to places where, you know, this is somewhere I always wanted to live. But due to, you know, being tied to an office previously, I, I didn't have that freedom. And now they've got, been given some of that freedom. And employers in a tight labor market have to be willing to give employees more freedom. And, and quite frankly, people, you know, when you've got job listings that are twice the number of people looking for work, people have the ability to do some job hopping. And so we've seen those, those shifts in population. We talked about the outmigration from California to Texas, to Tennessee, to the Southeast, you know, that, that migration out of the Midwest, out of the Northeast, it's cold up there. And you've got a lot of, you know, retirees who are, are looking to move to warmer climates looking to move to more affordable locations. And so I think these states in the, in the South and the Southeast are going to continue to draw population really from a, an affordability standpoint, but also just from a, a lifestyle standpoint as well. So, you know, that's- Hold that thought. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Heck, I bet you could still find me on Friendster. The handle is Full D Radio. And holler if you too would like to carry full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, my guest is Chris Porter of John Burns Real Estate Consulting. He is a demographer extraordinaire, co-authored the 2016 book, Big Shifts Ahead. In the few minutes we have left with you, Chris, talk to me about high-tech immigration, the special visas that the tech executives were complaining about during the Trump administration, that we don't have enough STEM workers, high-tech workers in the United States, to even begin to feed the shortage of engineering and programming jobs that we as the United States, Silicon Valley and whatnot, need to fill. Yeah, I mean, these are very desirable visas, you know, to your point. Uh, 
the ability to fill a job that is requires a high tech skill set that maybe we don't have here in the U.S. There's a, a wealth of workers abroad who can who can do that, and so yes, I think there's a high demand for those those types of visas. I'm certainly not an expert in that area, but uh, you know I think there's going to be continued demand for those high tech workers. The stat that I got from Pew Research: Latinos are the fastest growing racial and ethnic group in the U.S. electorate since the last midterm elections report. What kind of approaches, overtures have you guys been getting from corporations and consulting firms about trying to understand the Latino population? Again, that it is not monolithic, that it's super granular, whether you're talking about Central Americans, Cuban Americans, first generation Cuban Americans. Uh, what are some of the questions that are coming in from corporate America? Well, I, I think you're right in that we can't just look at them as is one big group. Uh, we do have to understand the different segmentation there. One of the things that we've learned about just immigration in general is that, you know, just because somebody moves over to the U.S. from another country, they are not necessarily forming a household right now or right away. Uh, and, and they're not necessarily buying a home right away. And in fact, we've watched over time as people are moving to the U.S. from, from overseas, uh, they tend to live with family and with friends here first before they move out on their own start form their own household or even buy their own home. And, you know, over the over the course of several decades, that starts to look very similar. Those trends start to look very similar to somebody who was born here in the U.S., but it does take a little bit of time for that, that catch-up. So I think one of the things that we've we've noticed, as I mentioned, people wanting to move uh, near family and friends is, is look where that existing population is today. And as new immigrants come to the U.S. and they want to live near family and friends, what does that mean for the growth uh, of those populations uh, in the future? Chris Porter, chief demographer at John Burns Real Estate Consulting. He's co-author of the book Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses, published in 2016. Uh, a fan of your uh, insights, sir. Uh, do you tweet? Are you on LinkedIn? Give us your details. I am on LinkedIn. You can you can find me there. Chris Porter, John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I am on Twitter at Demograph Chris. And uh, we'll see if I'm still on Twitter, <laughs> given all the, uh, <laughs> the news that's been going on there. Uh, but yes, uh, I, try, I try to post there pretty regularly, graphs that are insightful, hopefully, and, and give you something to think about a little bit. Well, you gave me a lot to think about. Come back on the show. Please do. Anytime. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and again, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Special shout out to our radio listeners on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF, Radio IQ, across the great commonwealth. Again, Message me to carry full disclosure on your air. Full disclosure, if you are just joining us, uh, we're calling this episode Demography. I mean, demography. Demography, the Latino vote, Latino consumer, the Latino economy has been very much in the news, especially in the wake of the 2022 midterm election, what with uh, shifting loyalties in South Florida and Texas and California and the East Coast. Joining me from Miami, my hometown, is Fernando Mandy. He's the managing partner of Ben Dixon and Amandi. This is a multilingual and multi-ethnic public opinion research and strategic communications consulting firm. It's worked with everyone from the UN to the World Bank, Univision, New America Media, the White House, James L. Knight Foundation. How are you, sir? Robin, my man. I'm doing good. Democracy lives to fight another election. But in my home state of Florida... It's a little bit uh, dicey, shall we say? Well, you you are in Ground Zero. I mean, Coconut Grove, very familiar address, old part of Miami. Miami is very much in the news, uh, South Florida, because I mean, it's no longer considered, I, I guess, purple. It got a little 
darker and red. And you used to work with Donna Shalala, who had the congressional seat, who's now in kind of Republican hands. The governor of the state, Ron DeSantis, is victorious. He blew Charlie Crist out of the water. And all eyes are on this mercurial, yes, not monolithic Latino vote. And I know your phone has been ringing off the hook about it today. Well, it has. And I think once again, the Latino vote showed that it is a force in American politics. And it really asserted itself, Robin, here in Florida, especially, but really throughout the rest of the country. But one of the things that I think this election has now settled the debate of is this question of our Hispanic voters fleeing from the Democratic Party and embracing the Republican Party. And I think the answer to that is no. And yes, No, in the national sense, because if you look at the 49 states that are not beginning with the letter F for Florida, you saw strong, even overwhelming Hispanic support for the Democrats, even in states like Texas, which are considered Republican states. But it's really on the strength of Hispanic support for the Democrats, Robin, in states like Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, uh, where those Hispanic voters just went three and two to one for the Democrats. They actually helped whether it was Fetterman, whether it was uh, Mark Kelly, or in the case of Nevada, Catherine Cortez Massa, the first Latina senator in the United States, they helped her and the Democrats hold that majority. So I think that's the storyline that's emerged from yesterday's surprising midterms to some. This The stat I can't come out of, get out of my head uh, dropped in late October, NPR asked me to talk about it, is U.S. Latinos they were their own economy, would be the world's fifth largest economy. I mean, such a lucrative demographic group that's becoming more and more valuable that if it was its own country, the Latino population here, spanning obviously Cubans, Chicano-Americans, Ecuadorians, Venezuelans in Doral, would have the fifth largest economy in the world. Did that blow your mind? You know, it, it didn't blow my mind only because I had seen a similar stat 10 years before, but I didn't realize we had vaulted into the top five of of world market purchasing power. But look, I think it speaks to what you're describing, Robin. This is the fastest growing segment of the American population. It's an upwardly mobile one at that. And as you said, they're not only upending and changing American business and American culture, but as we saw last night, they're having a monumental impact on American politics. When do you think the worm turns in a place like Texas? I mean, California, they tell me, used to be reliably red. This is Ronald Reagan's state. Virginia, where I am, northern Virginia is very different from southern Virginia and the other areas, but you still have a substantial Latino vote in pockets like Chesterfield, uh, Charlottesville. There are people who came here in the past to work in construction, everything stuck around. They're now raising their kids. Their kids speak English. They're not so monolithic as to just watch Telemundo or Univision. They've gone off to have their own opinions. Clearly, when you're asked to comment on your own community, the Cuban-American community in South Florida, it is anything but monolithic. The old money Cubans, who you and I have discussed, who came here in the 1950s and 1960s, They really didn't resemble the Mariel refugees who many of them don't have compassion for the more recent Cuban refugees that are getting exported back to Cuba. That's right. I mean, you know, one of the lessons I think I and a lot of others have learned is that when it comes to the Hispanic vote, as you said, certainly not a monolith in Florida, sometimes even within the own community, whether it's the Cuban-American community, Colombian-American, certainly the Mexican-American community, right. it's 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 varied, but you have to constantly keep engaging them. I don't think you can take that community or that electorate for granted in any way, shape, or form. So to your question, What's going to happen in Texas? I think it all depends on what both parties are willing to do to continue cultivating that vote. 
Now, what we've seen in Florida, our home state, is that despite efforts that happened in the last decade or two to try and gain support from Hispanics, which were successful, it's what helped Obama carry the state of Florida two cycles in a row in 2008 and 2012, those efforts were in essence kind of abandoned or left to, uh, as I say, engage in demolition by neglect. So when the Democrats took their pedal off of the gains that they had made with Hispanic voters in Florida, the Republicans came and scooped in and said, we're not going to let them take it away from us. And to their credit, they out-hustled the Democrats in Florida. And I think that that's going to be the case in Texas and in every other state in the country going forward because of how how much political prowess this vote has proven to have. What did Obama have in 2008 and 2012? I mean, 2008 was an extraordinary electoral college. I mean, I think he took Indiana, he took North Carolina, Virginia flipped. But what is it about Florida that Obama brought out the imagination? Did Obama get out the black vote and the Latino vote? Was it peculiar to him? Was it peculiar to the financial crisis we were in or the maybe the relative unlikability of kind of private equity Mitt Romney in 2012. Everybody has been asking me about this. Like, What turned specifically that that momentum was suddenly stopped in 2016? And clearly it's, it's, it's even continued and worsened now. Well, look, I mean, I think all of those factors in combination uh, played a role. Uh, you know, I, I'm never one that likes to say there's kind of a silver bullet answer to politics and anything. I don't believe in the silver bullet campaign spot or television ad or the radio spot. But, but what I will say that I think is unique to what Obama did in Florida and specifically with the Hispanic vote that I haven't really seen anybody else do, in all honesty, Robin, since, is that he had a plan. And his plan was that Florida was essential to him winning the presidency in 2008. And he made that same calculus again for his reelection plans, that he had to have Florida in 2012 he was going to be reelected. So what he did was he set out with a plan that focused on time, meaning he knew he had to have enough time to engage the Hispanic electorate in the state, message to them, understand what their concerns, needs, and priorities were, and then develop a messaging strategy that was done with great discipline, great focus, great attention over a course of time, not just in the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, or even the last couple of months before the election, but from a very extended period that also doubled with having and establishing surrogates, trusted surrogates in the community amongst the electorate that would deliver that message so that it was seen Robin is credible. I have not seen any Democrat go to that type of a degree and with that type of approach like Obama did. And it's shocking because when you engaged in that approach, what happens? He wins and the Democrats win Florida twice. Having abandoned that approach, they haven't won a statewide contest since. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Fernanda Mandy. Uh, in addition to being a lecturer at the University of Miami, he is managing partner of Ben Dixon and Amandi. It's a multilingual, multi-ethnic public opinion research and communications consulting firm. What is it exactly? I mean, how when corporations approach you, for example, in pursuit of this growing Hispanic consumer class, how is that even phrased? Like, what do they want? What do they like? Who is they? Again, for a thousand, a million times, I'll tell you that it's not a monolith. You have Central American workers here. You have people in the Mid-Atlantic. You have Jupiter, Florida, McAllen, Texas, Southern California, Arizona, pockets near Milwaukee. I guess you can be united by a religion and a language, but otherwise you're very different. 
I mean, I, I think that's right. But I think the question we always ask our clients is, what is it that you want to try and do? What segment of the audience do you want to understand? Because even though it's true, everything we've said, I'm not trying to contradict what you or I have said about the differences, the nuances, it's not a monolith. There are some things that do unite the Hispanic community. Whether you uh, speak a lick of Spanish or not, by the way, if you identify as a member of the Hispanic community, there is one thing that does kind of unite everyone, and that's culture. And that's kind of the linchpin that makes Hispanics, I think, while all of them Americans with a great sense of belonging and love for this wonderful country, there is that culture that kind of distinguishes them a little bit, a family-centric, very emotional, very touchy-feely, engaged, relationship-driven type of approach to life that uh, I find to be one of the distinguishing characteristics that applies to nearly every Hispanic. Now, what is it, why, uh, with the Trump administration's immigration policies and the, the optics of it, the visuals, the horrifying visuals, why didn't you see, as some expected, a kind of a recoiling away from that or a, a vote decisively against MAGA? Well, I actually think we did at the national level. I mean, I think this was supposed to be a midterm cycle that MAGA uh, was supposed to be mega and have a mega monopoly on on both houses of Congress and a majority at that, but th- that did not materialize. However, in in Florida, that message did register. And again, I think the case of Florida can be explained simply by saying the Democrats, for whatever reason, and I don't know when it happened. That people always think that these things happen in big smoke filled room, and somebody stands up and says, "All right, here's what's going to go down." I'm not sure it happened like that, but at some point. It's clear that the Democratic Party and uh, infrastructure said, no mas in Florida. We're not going to invest there. We're not going to engage there. It's a colossal pain in the ass. It's a waste of time. And every time we spend a ton of money there, we come up short. So it's better to spend more time, more resources, more focus in other states. And the absence of that kind of an effort left the playing field for MAGA and the Republicans to scoop up every Hispanic in Florida. And they did a very good job doing that. Uh, what What is going to be the immigration policy going forward? You remember famously, infamously, the postmortem from the 2012 election that the GOP subsequently under Trump ripped up, but saying we have to have a more coherent, kinder, gentler immigration normalization policy. In fact, Pew Research in 2021 said Latinos broadly agreed that the U.S. immigration system needs an overhaul, with large shares saying it requires major changes at 53 percent or needs to be completely rebuilt, 29 percent. You know, Robin, you know, those of us who follow markets and the economy, you know, they always say in politics, what's the old James Carville line from the Clinton campaign? It's the economy, stupid. What really frustrates me about the immigration issue is that fundamentally it's an economic issue. Many of these immigrants are coming to the United States, not just because some of them are looking for a better life and opportunity. Sure, that's that's part of the calculus, but they're coming because there's work here. There are jobs here that are needed because as we now have record employment, right? You've seen the the creation of jobs. There's still a ton of jobs that the economy demands labor to be filled. And we need these immigrants. And as long as we refuse to make immigration an economic-based argument and let it be one of these cultural ones, uh, unfortunately, I don't see the type of action that's going to be necessary to bring about the comprehensive immigration reform that Americans over and over again in the public opinion polls say they want. And they want it because they understand we need immigrants, hardworking immigrants who are going to come to this country and contribute to this country and be part of the workforce to create the quality of life that so many Americans enjoy. 
prior to you, we were talking to demographer Chris Porter from John Burns Real Estate Consulting about this, that that without new immigration, the economy in certain ways demographically would just hit a cry uncle point, that you have more people aging out, more people opting out, that you need immigrants to come in, young immigrants, and take these jobs and pay into the social security system, the old age pension system, uh, the system for Medicare, the entire entitlement system. Question is, I'm curious about the Chamber of Commerce wing of the GOP, which you've interacted with, versus the kind of culture wars wing of the GOP, which wants to shut the borders off. You do get people in the Chamber of Commerce wing, at least off the record, tell you we need immigration for construction jobs, for housing formation, for agriculture, clearly when the economy doesn't have that, inflation and what you're seeing right now as a result. Let me tell you what I think is the best encapsulation in in a minute or less that describes the absurdity of the MAGA Republican posture on immigration. So you, of course, remember the famous, infamous, I hate to even call it a stunt because it's the abuse of human beings, but the the deportation of the Venezuelan migrants that were en route to Florida to Martha's Vineyard, of course, right? So Ron DeSantis, who engaged in that horrific abuse of human beings, tried to, to, to gain political points on that and only to see not even two weeks later after the ravages of Hurricane Ian, he basically had to re-import Venezuelan immigrants to be part of the reconstruction effort on the Gulf Coast of Florida. So fundamentally, if that doesn't capture the hypocrisy, the absurdity, and the fundamental essence of why so many of these immigrants are not only coming here, but why they're needed, because it's to do work that this country needs done to move forward, to rehabilitate, to rebuild, I I don't know what else does. Here's what I don't understand, Fernand. Why was that a worthy kind of PR cost-benefit stunt for him? If he has a significant Venezuelan community, if you have people who have been here of means in Puerto Rico that moved, however, temporarily to South Florida, the people in Doral, the Cubans who might look at their own ancestry and their the, the people who they struggled to bring in off Mariel or the various other boat lifts, why didn't that engender more kind of fury at DeSantis? Because now we're getting into a philosophical and psychological conversation. In this case, what DeSantis and the Republican MAGA folks are doing is using this idea of hate and cruelty and division as a way of giving certain elements of the community this idea that they belong. They're the good ones. The other ones are the bad ones, which allows them to take this then provincial attitude uh, and, and and patronizing and hypocritical attitude towards the immigrants that are coming. The newer immigrants can then be dismissed, not as people coming like they came for a better life or freedom from oppression or even more economic opportunity, they're coming here to take advantage. They're coming here to suck the system dry. And that's the rhetoric that you hear directly coming out of the mouth of the MAGA Republicans. And to a certain segment, unfortunately, of Venezuelans, of Cubans, even some of Puerto Ricans, when they hear this, they feel like they're being told, you're in the good club, you belong. These bad people, even if they come from your country of origin, they're not like you, they're coming to do harm. So they can then feel superior to them. Fernand, a reader asked what the church says about this, if that's the unifying hour Sunday morning, La Iglesia I mean, wouldn't that be where the kind of the buck stops for charity and humanity and we take people in? The church has been an absolute abject failure 
and colossal disappointment. Uh, they should have been speaking out on this. And, you know, to a certain extent, at one point you saw the archbishop in South Florida, his name is Thomas Wensky of the Catholic Church, when Governor DeSantis tried to uh, shut down the, the younger uh, arrivals in the tradition of the Peter Pan Cuban exiles that came in the 60s. Uh, speak out, but they got the message real quick that they better shut up or they were going to get shut down. And they did. And you also see that stunning hypocritical silence, not just by the Catholic Church, but all of the Christian churches when it comes to this blasphemous use by DeSantis explicitly of him having been this messianic figure created by God on the eighth day after he rested, which was a literal ad that the DeSantis camp put out in the final days before the midterm elections. But the church was nowhere to be heard or found when it came to condemning that obvious act of Christian blasphemy. Fernand, in the seven minutes or so we have left with you, I want you to go freestyle. I mean, you're there in the ashes of Miami, you know, holding up the torch for the Democratic Party. I think about kind of who's left. I mean, what's your perspective? What are your predictions coming out of this? Is it just destruction or is there creative destruction? Kind of a moment of introspection or we need to pick up the pieces and we need to truly re-engage. After all, Obama last did this 10 years ago. Well, look, I think the Socratic method applies here, Robin. Uh, one was, must first know thyself. One has to embrace and understand and accept the truth. And the truth is, is that right now there is no Democratic Party in Florida. Florida is a ruby red MAGA Republican state, as I like to call it. Mecca for MAGA is what Florida is. And Democrats in this state have to ask themselves a very difficult question over the coming days and weeks. And the question is as follows. Do we as Florida Democrats want to continue to try and use our collective efforts and manpower and resources and focus and attention on trying to win statewide and local elections for Democrats in Florida? Or are we better off leveraging our work, our attention and our resources in support of Democrats in other states because Florida may be gone? And I think once that question can then be answered and is answered, then the pathway forward emerges. The other uh, point out of that, Robin, is that if the decision is made to engage and stay and try and turn Florida around, it has to be done with a 10-year horizon and a 10-year plan that is invested not in year five, year six, year seven. It has to be engaged with in year one, literally manana, tomorrow, and understand that there's going to be a lot of time and effort and sweat and resources spent until anything happens. But the plan is being put into place. And you have to look at not the 2024 or even the 2026 election, but the 2028, the 2030 election as the proving grounds to see if by 2032, Florida is another is a state again that is a battleground state where the Democrats can not only be competitive again, but win the state. And I'm afraid to be very candid with you, as I always am, that people will not want to make that kind of a decision and Florida will become the anti-California. Really, it could be a 10-year write-off to that extent. I mean, we're just coming off Charlie Crist, who was the Republican governor of the state, was repurposed as, I wouldn't say the most wholehearted Democratic candidate against DeSantis, but they spent a fair amount on him or Val Demings against Marco Rubio, the Cuban-American uh, GOP senator incumbent who's there, who's very hard to unseat. Who was the last statewide elected Democrat? Uh, the Agricultural Commissioner, Nikki Fried, she ran in 2018. 
And then she immediately ran for governor and lost by something like 25 points to Charlie Crist. But, you know, again, we suffer here in Florida from the Messiah complex, right? The idea that, oh, if we just find the right candidate or the right individual, our troubles will go away. And like Moses, he will lead us through the promised land. I take a different approach. I say that the brand is broken. The Democratic Party brand is broken in Florida. And until you fix the brand, you could run Jesus Christ or Thomas Jefferson himself. And as long as they had that D next to their name, they're going to have a hard time winning statewide in the Sunshine State. Close us out, Fernand. Uh, Broadly for the party, where do you see it heading? Biden seems to be, uh, he got some more spring in his step out of these results that you're not seeing the red wave materialize out of the House. The Senate is still up for grabs. It could come back down to a 50-50. Maybe he sees, uh, he and the party broadly sees second signs of life going into 2024. And moreover, how fascinated are you by the potential for Trump versus DeSantis? Not at all fascinated, (laughs) for starters. But look, let, let me talk about your first question first. I think this is an extraordinarily unique and interesting opportunity for Biden. What I have preferred that Biden still had majorities in the Congress to actually get legislation done Absolutely. And so would Biden and so would every other Democrat and pro-democracy American in the country. But the truth of the matter is that's not likely to happen. I think the Democrats will end up holding the Senate, but I think they're going to lose the House. That does, however, create an opportunity, Robin, for Biden to do what I don't think he and the Democrats actually did very well for these midterms. They now have two years to sell, sell, sell the story of all of the extraordinary accomplishments, real-life, real-time accomplishments that improve the lives of all Americans and that have moved the country forward during his first two years of the presidency. And the list is long and distinguished, whether it's the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to have a tremendous impact on climate change efforts, the American Rescue Plan, the things that lowered Medicare drug costs, the, the, the gun legislation. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I think Americans don't know what happened. And I think if Biden focuses on making the case over these next two years about what he and his administration did to best position America to survive this global inflation crisis as best as we can with the type of robust job creation and economic growth that we have, especially as compared to other nations in the world, then I think they can position themselves to be successful in 2024. But it also has to be done with the ultimate, I think, framing, which is the coalition of the Democrats for democracy. We welcome anyone and anyone who does not want to see fascist extremism brought to the country. I think that message that Biden brought in in the last weeks of the midterm was very effective because Americans know it's true. All they have to do is look at not only the January 6th insurrection, but the election deniers and even those that in the Republican Party openly talk about perhaps needing to move past democracy. But here's a here's a difference. You could totally envision Obama saying, si se puede, in front of Versailles Cafe in Cayocho. You cannot imagine Biden doing that. And that's where... You know, the, the party maybe dropped the ball and did not have continuity in messaging. Fernanda Mandy, you are always welcome on this show. Managing partner at Ben Dixon and Amandi in Coconut Grove, Miami. Also a lecturer at the University of Miami. Uh, sir, please come back on. It's always my pleasure. Thank you, Robin. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Kindly subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. 
And a shout out to our broadcast listeners on Radio IQ WVTF across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week.